Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. As we count down the final hours to Christmas, the anticipation has likely reached a fever pitch, especially for the kids in the room. Some of us might be packing up to hit the road as soon as this service is over. Others are already strategizing the most efficient use of the oven this afternoon with all the food that they need to cook. Still others have to wrap, though hopefully not purchase, a few final presents. And after this sermon is over, my attention will immediately shift to the other sermon that I'll be preaching this evening. But before we worry about any of those things, we still have some important work to do this morning. Today's four scripture readings come from Isaiah 7, Matthew 1, Romans 1, and Psalm 24. And when combined, they all serve a simple but crucial purpose. Put together, they remind us that even with everything else we may have left to think about, everything else we may have left to prepare or accomplish over the next 24 hours, Jesus is the very basis of Christmas. And his presence, God with us, is what we eagerly anticipate above everything else. So open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. As mentioned, we'll also spend time in Matthew 1, Romans 1, and Psalm 24. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for Sunday morning, whether it's one of the fairly run-of-the-mill, at least it appears, Sunday mornings throughout the year 2023 at Prairie View, or whether it's Easter Sunday, or whether it's Christmas Eve. Thank you for Sunday morning. Thank you that week in and week out, we gather to worship you. We have this rhythm, we have this routine to our lives that demands, that forces, that even graciously and thankfully challenges us to stop and remember you. I pray that we would remember you this morning with everything else that's on our plates over the next day or two. Help us remember you this morning and remember the very basis of Christmas, which is your presence, God with us. Thank you for the people who are here. I ask that you watch over us as we read from your word this morning. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, soft hearts and open minds to what your word has to say to us. I pray that your spirit would be present among us. Give us wisdom. Give us attentiveness to your word. Help us understand what you've revealed about yourself to us in your word. And I pray that our songs and our prayers and our conversations, everything else we do this morning and even this evening would be honoring to you. We love you. We worship you. We thank you that you are with us in the person and work of Christ, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. 
But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Before we focus on the verses we just read, this is one of those passages where a little context goes a long way in helping us understand what's happening. And much of that context can be found in 2 Kings 15 and 16. We learn in those chapters that the two kings whom King Ahaz of Judah dreads are Retzin of Syria and Pekah of Israel. One of those rulers is a pagan. The other one might as well be. But they are both wicked. However, the truth is that King Ahaz is no saint himself, to put it generously. In fact, Ahaz is a coward. He's an idolater. He's a child sacrificer sitting on the throne of Judah. And rather than looking to God for deliverance from his enemies, the way a godly king of Judah should, Ahaz has asked the nation of Assyria for help. That's when God sends the prophet Isaiah to speak to King Ahaz, and Isaiah says the words that we just read. So with that background in mind, now we can really focus on the content of verses 10 through 17. First, look again at King Ahaz's response to God's proposed sign in verse 12. It sounds very pious, doesn't it? I would never want to put the Lord to the test. But deep down, it's a kind of false humility. Ahaz has never really been all that reverent of God before. So why start now? And on top of that, he figures that he doesn't really need that sign from God. After all, he's already made his pact with Assyria. He's got things sorted out on his own. Or so he thinks. But in verse 13, God insists on providing that sign anyway. If not for King Ahaz himself, then maybe for the rest of The house of David. The sign will be the birth of a child. And before that child is grown up, the lands of the two kings threatening Judah will be no more. In other words, God will be with his people, whether King Ahaz trusts him or not. Regardless of how faithful or faithless Ahaz may be, God will remember his promises to David. 
that sign will serve as proof that God is with them and that God will even be with them in the coming judgment. However, there's a lot more to discuss in these hotly debated verses, specifically the makeup of that sign. The first question is this. Who's the mother of that promised child? Well, various Bible translations might disagree. Is she specifically a virgin or is she more generically a young woman? Is Isaiah talking about his own wife or is he talking about Mary in the New Testament? Well, the answer is yes. Everything we just said is true. And we'll have more on that in a moment. That leads to the second question. Who's the baby? Well, in Isaiah 8, right after this prophecy about a child being born, guess what happens? Isaiah's wife gives birth to his son. Ready for this one? Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Of course, we read Isaiah 7 and think of baby Jesus. And as we'll see in a few minutes, so does the Apostle Matthew. So again, that raises the question. Does this baby promised in Isaiah 7 belong to Isaiah's wife or Joseph's wife? Is the baby Maher Shalal Hashbaz? Or is it Jesus? And again, the answer, yes, both. Now, how can that be? How does that make sense? What do we mean? Well, in the Bible, a prophecy can have multiple fulfillments. You can have an immediate fulfillment, like Meher Shalal Hashbaz's birth, one chapter later, As well as an ultimate fulfillment. Like, I'm just spitballing here, Jesus' birth some 700 years later in the New Testament. In the short term, God promises King Ahaz that he will be with his people. For better or for worse. Before Isaiah's son is grown, Judah's enemies... Those two bad kings, Retzin and Pekah, will be no more. Of course, Ahaz must still decide whether he will trust God. And the answer is no. But in the long term, this prophecy previews a far greater way that God will be with his people. And that is accomplished at Jesus' birth. That leads us well into Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, our second reading of the morning. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, Resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And this should ring some bells for us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So Joseph, of the house of David, you should notice, finds himself in a bit of a pickle, doesn't he? His betrothal to Mary was more than what we would consider an engagement, but less than a marriage. On the one hand, they are legally bound to one another, which is why the word divorce is used in verse 19. On the other hand, verse 18 tells us that they had not yet come together. That explains why Mary could be called Joseph's wife And Joseph, her husband, even though she was still a virgin. So needless to say, it's a bit of a head scratcher when Mary suddenly becomes pregnant. And while she claims to still be a virgin, Joseph was not born yesterday. You didn't have to live in the time of ultrasounds to understand what's happening here. Mary must be off her rocker if she expects him to believe that absurd explanation. And maybe that's part of why Joseph seeks to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want someone who's clearly not all there to face public scorn. But then the angel intervenes. He validates Mary's story. He encourages Joseph to stay with her. And tells him what will become of this child. The baby in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. Better yet, he's the savior of God's people. The long-awaited Messiah. And according to Matthew, he's the greater, ultimate, long-term fulfillment of that strange prophecy that we read in Isaiah 7. Now, for all we know, Meher Shalal Hashbaz may have been a perfectly upstanding guy. Though Prairie View Meher Shalal Hashbazian church just doesn't quite roll off the tongue. The point is that Jesus is better. Jesus comes not as a sign of God's deliverance, but as the agent of God's deliverance. Jesus comes not as a sign that God's people will be saved from a political and military threat. He comes to deliver them from something far worse. Sin and death. And in a way that no one had ever seen before. In a way that not even the prophet Isaiah could have fully imagined. Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. He is not just a sign of God's presence. He is God present. 
Now, with all that said, let's come up for air for a moment and retrace our steps. Isaiah 7 is a prophecy about a virgin or young woman bearing a child. And Matthew 1 is the greatest fulfillment of that prophecy when a virgin named Mary bears a child named Jesus. But, you know, that angel also told Joseph that Jesus would be God with us. Emmanuel. He told Joseph that Jesus would save his people from their sins. Now, those are pretty bold claims. How exactly will they be fulfilled? Well, maybe the Apostle Paul can help us in our third reading of the morning. Romans chapter one, starting in verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Prophets like Isaiah, maybe concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God and power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So Paul calls the message about Jesus the gospel, the good news of God. What makes it so good? Well, what makes it so good is the angel's words from Matthew 1 came true. Jesus is the ultimate Emmanuel, God with us. In verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us that Jesus is a descendant of the house of David in terms of his flesh and blood and the son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. This man who walked talked, lived, and breathed among us is fully human and fully God somehow at the same time. And Jesus really did save his people from their sins. Paul tells us how in verse 4. His death on the cross. His resurrection from the dead. Later in Romans, Paul will tell us that Jesus was a propitiation for our sins. A sacrifice that averts wrath. He'll also tell us that as Jesus rose from the dead, so will all of those who believe in him. So all that's left now for sinners like us, sinners among all the nations, sinners in Paul's day and our day, all that's left is to believe and obey. Now, I'm sure that for King Ahaz, with Retzin and Pekah and Assyria all licking their chops, I'm sure the world felt like an awfully dark place. And I don't know about you, but to me, things feel pretty dark in our world right now. It's true physically. I mean, we're just barely beginning to escape the quite literally darkest time of year. It's true socially. 
It seems like division, distrust, and animosity reign supreme. It's true politically. Most of our earthly rulers consistently fail to keep their promises or inspire even the most basic level of confidence. It's true economically. We've become all too familiar with terms like inflation, recession, and depression over the past year or two. It's true militarily. Russia and Ukraine is starting to feel like old news. Israel and Hamas is a bloodbath, and alarm bells are already sounding about China and Taiwan. But then even beyond those large-scale shadows, even in addition to all of the pressing, urgent concerns we mentioned earlier, we're dealing with our own personal darknesses. Fractured families, devastating diagnoses, Spiritual droughts, painful losses, stunning disappointments, and regrets that feel paralyzing. And let's be honest. In the face of such overwhelming darkness, the word Emmanuel, or a phrase like God with us, may ring a bit hollow. But that word Emmanuel, That phrase, God with us, is more than just a well-meaning sentiment. It's more than just a warm idea. It's more than just a pithy ideal fit for a Christmas card. Every year, at this specific time of year, with all the lights and all the candles and all the trappings of Christmas, we are reminded that in the person and work of Jesus, God really has been with us. Even now, God is with us by his indwelling spirit. And God will be with us once again when Christ returns. He already came once To save his people from our sins. And he will come again to defeat sin, death, and Satan once and for all. So we Christians agree with the Apostle Paul. We call this message the gospel. We call it good news. Now our fourth and final reading of the morning is Psalm 24. We won't read the entire thing. This psalm may have been read during the procession of the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. The Ark was arguably the most tangible sign of God with us in the entire Old Testament. Generally speaking, when the Israelites had the Ark with them, they flourished. And when they didn't, they fell flat on their faces. But as great of a sign as the Ark of the Covenant may have been, it wasn't Jesus. It wasn't Emmanuel. And as great of a sign as Meher Shalal Hashbaz may have been in his original context, he wasn't Jesus either. He wasn't the ultimate Emmanuel. But if those temporary signs of God's presence with his people could inspire the sort of praise, joy, and confidence that we read in Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. 
Lifting up your heads, O gates, that the king of glory may come in. Then how much more should Jesus Christ, the real, true Emmanuel, God present in the flesh by the power of the spirit, how much more should he inspire praise, joy, and confidence in us, even in the face of our deepest darkness? Because of Jesus, we can praise that the king of glory has come and is coming, no matter how bad things might look around us. As we close, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9, right before that passage we read to start the sermon, we read these words spoken to King Ahaz. The words are, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, again, I'm sure we all have a lot on our minds this morning. The past few days, the next few days, will likely be some mix of busyness, stress, excitement, and exhaustion. After all, the car isn't going to pack itself. The casserole isn't going to bake on its own. And unlike in Santa's workshop, we don't have elves to wrap those final few gifts. But beyond those seemingly urgent tasks and pressing concerns, we're also attempting to navigate our own forms of deep darkness. And if that's the case, we will inevitably be tempted to look to all kinds of things that are not God for hope, deliverance, security, and joy. And the fog of war that is life in a fallen world We may also be tempted to lose sight of what or who this whole holiday season is really about. But if we forget Jesus as the very basis of Christmas, we've missed the point entirely. We've lost the plot. And if we are not firm in that faith, we will not be firm at all. So in this time between, marked by both uncertainty and anticipation, may we remember that the king of glory has come and lift up our heads, lift up our gates. God is with us in our present darkness, and he will be with us once again. And in that day, he will be our light. So if we savor nothing else from the whirlwind that is this common Christmas, may we remember that our Savior, Messiah, and Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, has come to save his people. People like you and people like me from their sins. May we remember that God is with us, even when we feel alone. And that is good news. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that you really are with us. You have not left us as orphans.
You've given us your helper. You've given us your spirit as we wait for Christ to return. And even Jesus himself, before the Great Commission, said that you will be with us even to the ends of the age. So, Lord, I pray that we would embrace that truth, that we would believe in the good news of Emmanuel, that we are never as alone as we think we are, that even when things look dark, the light has come, the light is here, and the light will come. And with that in mind, amidst all the distractions, all the darknesses, all the stresses of life in a fallen world, which are maybe particularly acute at such a busy time of year. I pray that we would remember Jesus as the basis of Christmas. Remember that you, present among us, is our ultimate reward, our ultimate goal, our ultimate hope, the thing that we're looking forward to far more than anything else at Christmas or any other time of year. Lord, I pray that you would watch over us in the days ahead amidst all the hustle and bustle. Remind us that you really are the basis of our hope, the basis of our joy, the agent of our deliverance, and the source of our security in this life and in the next. Help us trust you more than we trust in anything else. We love you. We glorify you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.